Well, we are going to be talking about the, the heart uh, over the next few weeks uh, and kind of a theme of, of, of um, uh, developing a heart like God's. Heart is one of those words we use in a lot of different ways, uh, even in our English language, right? So if you hear heart, maybe you think about that muscle, muscular organ that pumps blood through your body that is really important because if it's not functioning, the body's not functioning. But sometimes we use the heart to mean other things. So we may say something like, uh, uh, you broke my heart. And that's an indication of the, not that the physical organ isn't functioning, but, but that something, something hurt, something wounded emotionally, perhaps deeply. I love you with all my heart. It's kind of a, a, a testament of the strength of our, our love, our affection, the, including the emotion that's connected with that. Sometimes we'll talk in our English language about, that man, that person has a lot of heart. That team has a lot of heart. And we're talking about their courage, their persistence, their, their power, and keep showing up, just that, that tenacity of will, perhaps, along the way. And sometimes we talk in terms of, well, let's just get to the heart of the matter, right? And there's a lot of periphery things, but let's get to the heart of the matter. What's really the heart of it? And what we mean by that is what's the core here? What's the central issue? What's really the most important thing here of all? We use the word heart in a lot of different ways in our English language. When you come to the Bible, you find something similar. That the Bible can use the word heart in a lot of different ways. It, it will speak of heart as that muscular blood-pumping organ. But it also talks about the heart in other ways. Mostly when you hear heart, when you read heart in Scripture, oftentimes that's referring to kind of what's central. What is kind of the core of our being? It, it encompasses kind of the emotional, the intellectual, the volitional, kind of just who we are, who we are as a person. It, it doesn't discount the physical, but it's deeper. It's more central than just our physical nature, the heart of who we are. And what you find as you go to Scripture is that God places a high priority on the heart. That the heart matters to God. And it's not that our physical being doesn't matter. I mean, he's the creator of everything physical as well. It's just that he places a priority on the heart. So much so that you would read in Proverbs 4, you would read about, above all else, guard your heart. Keep your heart with all diligence or vigilance because from it, kind of all the issues of life spring. You are to guard your heart. Looking at the Old Testament, and particularly the book we're going to be looking at here today, 1 Samuel, uh, you, you find God indicating that while the physical may be important and may be even impressive, it's not primary. Samuel was tasked with anointing one who would be king, who would follow Saul, whose life we're going to look at today, and it was going to be David. Uh, and as he was going to Jesse's household, he, he saw some of the older siblings. And some of them were quite impressive. I mean, first child, uh, achiever, motivator, had the look. It, I mean, it just seemed like this would be the ideal candidate for a king. And, and God gave Samuel just a quick correction. It's in your note-taking guide. But the Lord told Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And when he looked at the heart, he found something in David. He found something in David that could be developed. 
He could develop a heart like his. So the New Testament testimony of David is this in Acts 13. And when he, when he had removed him, being Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And that, that's kind of what we're going to look at in this series. What does it mean to have a heart like God's? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman after God's own heart? And how does God develop that in us? And so that's, that's really the focus of this series. But before we really get to see what God did in David, I want us to go back just a little further in history to his predecessor, to a man by the name of Saul. This is the Old Testament Saul, the first king of Israel. And what we find in Saul is kind of a heart that started off so well, but ended up in decay and deterioration. And Saul's life is kind of a warning. It's kind of a warning of what can happen to an unguarded heart. And it's a warning that we can learn from today. I think it's a warning that David learned from. As David watched what was taking place in Saul's life, I think that helped shape the heart development of David along the way. When you find Saul's story, and it's kind of recorded there in 1 Samuel for us, what you find is that he really started off so, so well. And we won't take time to read these because we're going to kind of span a lot of chapters today to get this overview. Uh, but if you went back to 1 Samuel's chapter 9 and 10, you'd find that Saul starts off so well. He's an impressive man physically, head and shoulders above others. Uh, there seems to be no one else like him among the people. And, and yet he has a humility. He's kind of wondering why, why he has been chosen for this honor to be king. He's the least of the smallest of, of a clans. You find him exhibiting early on a very generous spirit. There were folks who opposed him being king, and when he had kind of risen to power and had some success, there were folks that said, you know, we ought to take care of these guys. We ought to kill them. He said, no, 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 no. That we're not, we're not going to have any of that. That's not the way we're going to operate. You'll see the exact opposite in, in a few minutes as we continue to follow his life. Uh, he starts off as king, 30 years old, reigned 42 years as king, started off so full of promise, so much potential. The future had to look so incredibly bright as Saul stepped into this. But by the end of his record, you find a man who is captured tormented by depression, alienated from his family, lost the respect of his countrymen. And you have to think, you know, how does this happen? I mean, how, how did he go so wrong? And the reality is that Saul didn't just crash in a moment, but he drifted. He drifted a little bit at a time. He didn't start off that way with a decayed heart, but he ended up there. A little bit at a time. And as I was thinking about this message and thinking about all the events of this past week, weather-wise, uh, you know, all the scenes we've seen of the storms. And, you know, storms are incredibly powerful. And, and obviously this one was pretty destructive in some different places up and down the coast. And, and just, you know, there are folks that are picking up pieces. There are piers that have been wiped out and all sorts of things. I mean, that, that storm. But I remember reading a few years ago that while all those get the attention... You know what does more damage to homes in the U.S. than storms, right? It's termites. 
that it actually wipes out and destroys more homes every year than the storms we see on the Weather Channel, right? But it happens slowly, almost not being perceived until the damage is too far gone. And I think that's kind of a picture of what can happen in our lives. It's not so much a storm that blows us away. It's the little decay. It's the little deterioration that eats away at us moment by moment, day by day. And if we're not guarding our heart, if we're not paying attention, eventually there's a collapse. But there's a collapse not so much because of a storm, but because of the deterioration and decay that had been taking place all along the way. So what I want us to learn from Saul, and admittedly it's a negative example, but what I want us to learn is kind of four stages of spiritual decay. And that's not to say there's only four stages. It's just it's easy to kind of see four stages of spiritual decay in the life of Saul as it's recorded for us in 1 Samuel. So we're going to go fast, kind of cover lots of chapters, won't be able to read it all. But I want you to see the first stage, let's just call it tolerating subtle disobedience. Tolerating subtle disobedience to God. And we'll just go ahead and look at 1 Samuel 13. Uh, Saul is king. He's already been anointed king. Samuel gives him an assignment. There's a battle getting ready to happen with the Philistines. He's assembling at this place. He's supposed to wait on Samuel seven days to come uh, to offer this sacrifice. But he begins to panic. He begins to panic because he sees the size of the Philistine army. He sees some of his soldiers are starting to scatter a little bit. And in his panic, he disobeys. He offers a sacrifice he doesn't have the right to. And then watch him rationalize. Watch him rationalize. I'm going to start reading in verse 8 of chapter 13. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were sacrificed, scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering for me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now let's pause here for just a moment. You may think, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? I mean, you know, it's understandable. He's under time pressure. He's feeling people pressure. Somebody needed to do this. I mean, after all, he wanted to seek the Lord's favor. What on earth could be wrong with that? What was wrong with that is that God had told him how to do it. God said, Samuel was the one authorized as my prophet to do this, not you as king. These are separate functions not to be mixed. And yet in his panic, he disobeys. And while it may not have seemed like a big thing, it was a huge thing because it's a command of Almighty God. And in the end, what you find is that Saul was trying to do what many, many of us do, and that is he was trying to use God. 
He was trying to use God kind of like a genie in a bottle. Hey, we're getting ready to have this battle, and, and, and I don't want to go into it without kind of, kind of the, the magic covering of God, and so I'm going to offer these sacrifices. And sometimes we can do that. You know, God, I, I'm kind of walking in my way. I'm doing my thing. I've got this problem, and so break glass in case of emergency. God, I want to use you. God, I'm going to give an offering, or God, I'm going to say a prayer, or I'm going to do something spiritual so that you'll kind of bless this, so you'll help me out here or whatever it might be but God will not be used God will not be used God is not a genie in a bottle he is sovereign over creation and he demands rightfully obedience it not only honors him but it's best for us and what you begin to see here in Saul's life and you'll follow it throughout these chapters is he begins to disobey First in maybe small ways, subtle ways. But then it begins to get larger and larger. And that's how decay often unfolds. We begin to kind of ignore God in little things. We begin to kind of engage in some subtle disobedience to God. Not not a major blowout. It's just kind of, this makes sense to me, you know. It's it's, it's an emergency situation. The time is short. Pressure's on. I'll just do it this one time. And there's a subtle disobedience. And you see that pattern continuing so that if you went over a couple chapters to chapter 15, again, God is commanded. It's a hard command to understand. He's commanded as as they go to battle against this king and this people, the Amalekites, it'll just destroy everything. That he does, God knows he does, you just don't mix with these people. It's not, it's not good for the nation. And so he commands them to destroy everything. But what Saul engages in is what we'll call selective obedience. Selective obedience. In chapter 15, he decides it doesn't make sense to kind of do all this and wipe all this out. So if you looked at verse 9 in chapter 15, But Saul and the people spared Agag, who was the king, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Now skip down to verse 13. This, that's what he did. But here's kind of the explanation, if you will. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. Always good to have a spiritual sounding greeting, right? I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They, wasn't him, of course, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Now let's pause right there. Selective obedience. God said this, but we said, You know, the bad stuff we'll destroy. The best we're going to keep. But we're going to make it sound good because we're going to take some of that very best stuff and we're going to offer some of it as a sacrifice to you, God. Selective obedience. First it starts off as subtle disobedience and then it becomes kind of a selective obedience. And Samuel just confronts him. He confronts him. It's absolutely wrong. And this pattern is going to destroy. It's going to rip the kingdom from your hands. And then if you skip down to verse 22 in that same chapter, you find this key principle. The key principle is to obey is better than sacrifice. Verse 22, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Here's what I want you to understand. What God wants to develop in me, what God wants to develop in you is a heart, a heart that is tender toward him, tender toward him with love and trust. He's not looking for sacrifices. He's looking for a heart that will obey. Will obey not selectively, not just in the things that are big, but in the things that seem subtle as well big and small. He's looking for hearts that are attuned to him. And so we're going to ask just kind of a question of reflection, a point of reflection on each of these kind of stages. The first one is this, is there any area of subtle disobedience in my life? And I'm just going to ask you to sit before the Lord with that. I hope for the moments this morning, but I even hope for the next few days. Subtle disobedience, maybe an area where I've kind of rationalized in my head, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's only a little thing. It's only a small thing. It's only a a quick look. It's only a little bit of money. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to get hurt. Not that big a deal. Have I begun to tolerate areas of subtle disobedience? Because that's where decay oftentimes first sets up. If you have, name it. Let's just call it what it is. Let's not spiritualize it. Let's not religious paper over it. Let's call it what it is. Name it and repent of it. Don't rationalize it. The first step that we see unfolding in this decay of Saul's heart is he was tolerating areas of subtle disobedience. The second area or stage is he's tolerating the loss of intimacy with God. Tolerating the loss of intimacy with God. There was a closeness, but now that closeness is beginning to be marked more and more by a distance. So we're just going to kind of continue to flip through Samuel here as we we see this pattern emerging. David begins to uh, appear on the scene as he's appointed to the king's service, particularly in the area of music. So the verse 14... Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. What's going on is that the spirit of the Lord has has now departed Saul. And I'm not sure that he's fully aware of the implications of that. And in that that kind of vacuum, if you will, uh, a harmful spirit allowed by the Lord is beginning to torment or or, or taunt, if you will, Saul along the way. Now, a couple of quick observations. First, this, this whole thing is not possible for a true believer today. For a follower of Jesus Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Once we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, the the Holy Spirit is with us and within us forever. It cannot be fully taken away. So it's not possible for us to have the Spirit of the Lord depart from us. What is possible is that we can lose our fellowship. We can lose our fellowship and our intimacy with God. And while we still have the Spirit within us, we, 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 we lose that connection. We lose that sensitivity. We lose our responsiveness to the Spirit's activity. So we, we're no longer hearing those whispers. We're no longer uh, aligning our life in obedience to His call. More and more, we're kind of ignoring that and distancing ourselves from that along the way. So Saul is recognizing something has changed. Something is not the same. 
But instead of of turning back to God with his whole heart, he tries to do what many of us are tempted to do, and that is to get relief. So look at verse 23. Just skip down. This is kind of where David comes in. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and he played it with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, what's going on here? What's going on is that Saul is seeking to use music to get relief. He's seeking to use music to get relief when what he really, really needed was to repent. He's getting relief, but what he really needed was to repent. Now, I I highlight this because I can do this, and you can do this. When when we sense maybe the kind of a loss of connectedness, a loss of intimacy, a loss of fellowship with the Father, sometimes in that absence as we begin to kind of struggle with other things, what we end up doing is we want relief. We want relief from that pain. We want relief from that uneasiness. We want relief from that struggle. And maybe we use music. A lot of us just use activity. We just start to get busier. If I get busier, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to pay attention to it. I don't have to be sensitive to it. So I just fill my life up with activity. Even religious activity at times can be a way of seeking relief instead of turning to God in repentance. Sometimes we seek out human relationships so that sometimes somebody will find themselves uh, being drawn to some relationships that many times even end up not being very healthy for them and the reason they got there was because they are seeking relief and those relationships give them a temporary relief i feel connected i feel a place of belonging i'm not kind of being aware as much of the lack of intimacy anymore sometimes it's activity sometimes it's noise sometimes it's a relationship sometimes we just self-medicate Sometimes we turn to alcohol. Sometimes we turn to drugs. Sometimes we turn to a lot of different things because I want relief. I want relief. When God is saying what you need is repentance. Don't settle for relief when what you really need is repentance. It's kind of like you've got something majorly wrong with your body, right? You got you got cancer, or you got this broken bone, or you got you need surgery. But instead of dealing with the real issue, you say, "Give me something to kill the pain. Give me something so that I'll feel better. Give me something so that I can function this week." What you're looking for is not healing. What you're looking for is relief. That's what we do sometimes in our relationship with God. Instead of seeking the healing, which will come through repentance, we seek relief. We seek release from the pain so that we can function for a few more days. I can't tell you the number of folks that I have seen through the years who have just gotten their life so knotted up because they settled for relief instead of looking for the healing of repentance. And it happens to folks who sit in churches every single week. Don't settle for relief. Can I just try, I try this on a consistent basis, but can I just try to reframe repentance for you? Sometimes we hear repentance as such a negative thing. There's a negative aspect in the sense there's something negative you should turn from, but it's really a positive call. 
It's a positive, gracious call of a loving God to come home. Come home to your father. Come back to his design. Come back to his best for your life. It's an invitation to come toward the healing and not just settle for dealing with the symptoms. Repentance is an incredibly positive word. It's a positive call from God to return to health, to return to healing, to return to life. That's what the call was upon Saul's life and my life and yours when we begin to drift. But if we settle for relief, we're going to continue to drift. And that's what Saul did. He tolerated subtle disobedience. He tolerated the loss of intimacy with God. A third thing, well, let me give you the question first. I'm sorry. The reflection here is how are things between God and me right now? Is there any area where I've been seeking relief instead of heeding God's gracious call to repentance? And again, I can't answer any of these questions for you. I'm just throwing them out there, hoping maybe the Spirit will prompt some reflection for you around this. The third stage that we see in Saul's life is he began tolerating poisoned relationships. He began tolerating poisoned relationships. You see, when things aren't right vertically, eventually it begins to show up horizontally. It begins to show up in our actions and our words and our attitudes. It begins to show up out of our relationship with God. It begins to show up oftentimes in our relationships with other people. So when you keep following the narrative, when you get to 1 Samuel 18, what you find is David increasingly is loved and he is successful. He's loved and successful. And we won't take time to read all those verses, but you can see it. Jonathan, Saul's son, his heart's knitted to David. The people more and more are loving David. Even, even Saul's daughter falls in love with David. Time and time again, the scriptures record for us here his success in battle, his success in leadership, uh, that the Lord w- was with him and, and was successful wherever Saul sent him out. So here we have David, who's loved and successful, And Saul's response to that is jealousy. Saul is jealous. He's jealous. Let me just go ahead and read verse 6. As they were coming home, they're returning from another battle. When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Then verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. So that something was starting to happen in his heart toward David. David who had served him with love. David who had served him in humility. David who was beloved by his family and his countrymen. David who was bringing great success to the kingdom. But this jealousy was taking hold of his heart. Jealousy and envy have been problems since the beginning. I mean, go back to Cain and Abel in the very first book of the Bible. When things aren't right between you and God, it shows up in your relationships with other people. Very often... Well, sometimes when, when, a, when a couple's in crisis, sometimes it's just that there's some very practical things that we can do and help and coach and those sort of things. But a lot of times it's got to go back, what's the foundation of our relationship with God? 
Because if that gets off, then it affects all of our human relationships along the way. Whether it's Cain and Abel, David and Saul, you and me and somebody else along the way. And so Saul gets to the point where he so gets twisted that he thinks the way to deal with this is to eliminate. So Saul thinks that somehow he just eliminates David, then all of his problems will go away. Verse 10, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. David had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Isn't it interesting? Sometimes we can get to the point where we feel like, if I could just get rid of this person, if this person wasn't in my life anymore, if I could just eliminate this person, then everything would be all right. But the problem for Saul wasn't David. The problem wasn't out there. The problem wasn't over there. The problem wasn't another person. The problem was in here. The problem was a heart that was decaying, a heart that had grown toxic, a heart that had drifted from intimacy with God and was engaging in increasingly subtle acts of disobedience or selective obedience. And as that heart began to harden and decay, his relationships were changed. The problem wasn't going to go away. Even if he had been able somehow to kill David, his problem would have remained. It would have just been somebody else next week because the problem was his heart. He was tolerating poisoned relationships, which leads to the point of reflection. Do I have a toxic spirit toward another? And that doesn't mean we... Every relationship's perfect, and we realize we live in a sin-scarred world, and, and the Scripture encourages as far as possible with you to live at peace. But we know that doesn't always happen. But what is the spirit that you're harboring toward another? Is there, is there hatred? Is there jealousy? Is there envy? Is there bitterness in that? Because that's what becomes toxic in you. And if you discover it's present, then the admonition of Scripture is do whatever you have to do to deal with it. Whatever you have to do, that doesn't necessarily guarantee the relationship is going to be perfect. But you've got to deal with that toxic spirit. You've got to deal with your heart. You've got to deal with what's going on with you. And so when you go to Matthew's gospel, you see encouragement. Man, leave your gift at the altar if you have to. Try to go be reconciled. Matthew 18 talks about what do you do when somebody's sinned against you. I mean, Christ prayed for the unity of his body. Man, how dare any of us tarnish that unity for which Christ gave his life. And so I can't guarantee perfect relationships, but I can guarantee you that your heart will decay if you're tolerating toxicness in yourself. If if you're allowing bitterness and envy and all of those things to take root in your heart, it will bring about decay. One last stage we'll look at today, and that is the fourth one that he finally got to the point. He's kind of been on this slide, lack of intimacy, uh, subtle disobedience, selective obedience, toxic relationships, and now he gets to the point where he's going to be betraying the very values that he once would have staked his life on. Betraying the very values he once would have staked his life on. And there's so much there, but more, but let's just go to chapter 28. In chapter 28, uh, the end is within sight. Saul, previously as king, had banned all mediums and fortune tellers and all that stuff from the country. I mean, they were to be driven out because he knew that was, that was just way off base in terms of a relationship with God. 
But here he gets to the point where he is so desperate that he's seeking out this fortune teller. He's seeking out this, this medium to try to get a word from God because he is so decayed now, is so deteriorated in his walk and his life that, that he can't sense the presence of God or the direction of God. And you begin to sense at this point the downward spiral is complete. Let's just pick it up in verse 6. In verse 6, And then Saul inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now, what's going on? Here Saul has gotten to the point he's not hearing from God because his heart's so deteriorated. And the reason, in part, is because he really didn't want to hear from God. Because at this point, if he was going to hear from God, it would involve that word repentance again. And that was what he was not willing to do. And so he's still trying to use God. He's still trying to kind of use God in some way, form, or fashion. God, I just need a word to get ready for this battle. But God's not going to be used. He wasn't going to be used in the beginning. He's not going to be used at the end. Instead of hearing a call to repentance, he's trying kind of a magic formula. And so if you get toward the end in verse 20, you just see this sad picture of a decayed heart. I mean, Saul is just wiped out now. He's finished. He's filled with fear. There's nobody left to comfort him except a two-bit fortune teller. And in just a few chapters, he's going to fall on his sword, a broken man. A tragic end to a decayed heart. A few chapters earlier, Samuel had died. And the Scripture tells us that all Israel wept for him. It was, it was weeping out of gratitude. Gratitude for a life well lived. When Saul died, all of Israel wept. But I think it was more weeping of regret. Regret for what might have been. For a regret of what could have been in Saul's life, what could have been in the kingdom had Saul walked with God. And in many ways, we're going to come to the end of our life and maybe people, maybe we, will weep out of gratitude that we walked with God with a tender heart or out of regret. Regret of what we experienced through decay, what we didn't experience because of the decay we allowed to set in. Regret over missed opportunities that God had sent our way, but we missed because we weren't open to him. And so the point of reflection here on this last one is, is there any area of my life where I am betraying the very values I once would have staked my life on? Again, sometimes we hear this great crash, you know, some of this high-profile person, a business or politics or uh, the church world or whatever it may be, and feel this great moral failure or whatever it is, and we think, how could that have happened? How could that? I mean, it just seemed like it came out of nowhere. It seemed like it happened overnight. Rarely, 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 if ever, does it happen overnight. It just shows up overnight. What's been taking place is a slow and steady decay and deterioration over a number of years. And then we came to that kind of final testing point or final breaking point or whatever it is, and this person ends up betraying the very values they once would have staked their life on. They didn't get there overnight. They got there through the slow, subtle erosion, decay, and deterioration of a heart. That's why the Proverbs say, above all else, guard 
your heart. Guard your heart. You may or may not know the name of Robert Robinson, but you may know some of his works. He was a hymn writer, among other things. Perhaps the most well-known to us would be the Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. Robinson's story is interesting. His father died when he was eight years old. He fell into kind of a rough crowd and ended up uh, just kind of spiraling in some really destructive ways. He ended up actually going to make fun one time at uh, the preaching of George Whitfield, but fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, became a follower of Jesus Christ, and within a few years sensed a call of God to the ministry. And he ended up uh, uh, pastoring a Methodist church, eventually became a, a pastor of a Baptist church. He was noted as an able theologian through his writings and particularly through several of his hymns. Again, come thou fount of many blessing, perhaps being the best known. One of the verses of that, that song, maybe you remember it, actually comes from 1 Samuel. He, the words go, uh, here, here, I, here I lay, or, or establish, if you will, uh, mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. So here I raise my Ebenezer. It's kind of out of 1 Samuel 7 where uh, the prophet kind of took this, this stone, a stone of remembrance of the faithfulness of God, a reminder of the faithfulness of God. But another verse in that same hymn gave us perhaps a clue as to what was going to happen in Robinson's life. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, the Lord I love. A few years after pinning that hymn, Robinson's life spiraled out of control. He ended up with lapses into sin, unstableness, some strange doctrines along the way, eventually kind of falling totally out of ministry and being known at all. The story is told that on one day he was riding in a stagecoach. There was a young woman there deeply engrossed in a hymn book. And during the ensuing conversation, she turned to Robinson and asked what he thought of the hymn she was humming. And she was humming, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. And as the story is recorded, Robinson burst into tears there in the stagecoach. And he said, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I had then. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, the Lord, I love. Now, I don't want to leave us there, although that's a true message and a powerful warning. And it's more the admonition to guard our hearts above all else. But I also want you to hear one other word. It's a gospel word. And it's in that box there on your note-taking guide. Good news, which is the essence of gospel. That we serve a God who through Jesus Christ can take a decaying heart and transform it into a heart like his. 
And I just, I want to encourage you today, even as I, I want us to be warned by the life of Saul and take that warning soberly and realistically, I also want us to hear this encouragement that even if decay is set in, even if you sense some deterioration, even as you've begun to reflect on some of those questions, some warning lights have begun to go off, I want you to know that that decay is not irreversible. It is not inevitable that you will end up as Saul ended up. It can be transformed. It can be transformed by the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. But it's not going to happen if you settle for relief. It'll only happen when you hear the gracious call of repentance and you get up and you run home to the arms of your loving Heavenly Father. I just want to encourage some of you this morning. Some decay may have set in, but it doesn't have to continue. But don't short-circuit the process and settle for relief. Don't just treat the symptoms. Don't just fill your life with more activity. I'm convinced that many of the things people throw themselves into is just seeking relief. Don't settle for anything less than healing that comes through the pathway of repentance. And when you do, you'll begin to discover that God can develop a heart like his in you.